0: Prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny, Allahumma <laughs> salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad arja falajum. Brothers, sisters, and dear respected viewers, Assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And thank you for joining us once again in our series on the topic of the afterlife, where we are inshallah building on the last um, subtopics or sub-themes that we have been covering. And today we are at the point of discussing the topic of belief, Iman. Understanding what Iman is so that we understand the role of belief for the afterlife. And this is going to be a very important and crucial distinction or or notion to make sure we understand well. If we understand it properly we're going to resolve a lot of issues on on its own. Otherwise we have to discuss those issues one by one on their own. So what we're trying to understand today is the nature of belief, the nature of Iman, and therefore the role that it will play in our afterlife the role that it will have for eternal happiness or eternal unhappiness. So, the lack of Iman and what it could lead to or Iman and what it could lead to. So, once again very quickly for the recap of where we were. The nature of this world, I think insha'Allah, is clear. The and and this is something that we discussed both from reason and from the Holy Qur'an we also talked about the journey that we are going to undertake the journey starting from the moments of death and then following into alam al-barzakh, the intermediary world and then the big milestones in the afterlife starting from Judgment Day and leading all the way to entering Heaven or, for Billah Hell And then we had a discussion about comparing the two worlds, the nature of this world and the nature of the afterlife, and if you have a choice to make, which one do you choose? How do you prioritize? And we said that one of the beauties, one of the distinctive features of our religion is that it offers us a way to live while enjoying both this world and the next world in a balanced way but there will be situations where you are forced to choose one or the other it's in those situations that you have to remember where your priorities are but generally speaking the more you understand the spirit of our religion the more, the more you see that it teaches us to strike the right balance between living in this world and enjoying this world and building this world while at the same time remembering that we are created for the afterlife we are not created for this world in itself with all of that said the next discussion that we had, and inshallah you guys remember it clearly was the discussion about perhaps uh, a, a misconception that someone may have with regards to the type of things that we may enjoy in this world versus the types of things you can enjoy in the afterlife and we said there's two misconceptions here One of them is that some people may think that if you enjoy things in this world, it also means that you will also get to enjoy things in the afterlife. And we explained the root of this misconception and we solved it, inshaAllah. And then on the other side, we said there are those who believe or who misunderstand religion as meaning that you have to deprive yourself of the enjoyments of this world in order to enjoy the afterlife. In other words, whatever you enjoy in this world, you're going to be deprived of it in the afterlife. And we we gave as a very concrete example of this, what we refer to as a monasticism, right, al living like a monk, that we find in the Holy Quran mentioned about Christians, where the Holy Quran says, we did not impose this on them, they created it themselves. And the verse seems to indicate that they did that with good intentions, but if it was that good, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have prescribed it on them, but He did not. And the end result was that the majority of them left religion. It caused a disaster at the end because they're not striking the right balance for ordinary human beings to be able to live in this world while keeping the priority of the next life. So inshallah, those two misconceptions are solved and then we went into the discussion about the nature of the relationship between uh, faith and, and belief and action in this world and how it becomes a reward or punishment in the afterlife. This was the last discussion that we had. And we said that the majority of us may be under the view that, under the impression that the relationship is a conventional relationship, as a relationship of convention, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala simply decides that. For doing action X, you receive reward Y. You do something and you get something in return. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala randomly decides what that looks like. This is, as we said, it might be too much of a superficial understanding of many of the verses of the Holy Quran. And when we look at some of these verses a little bit more closely and we look at some of the narrations that we have, we start seeing that the relationship is not necessarily one of a simply a contract or a convention in fact it's an existential relationship and even beyond that, it's not just that there's a causality that is existential in fact it's an identity meaning that whatever you are putting into this world that is what you are getting back you're not getting back something different you are getting back exactly what you are putting in in this world in terms of actions in terms of belief and intentions, the only difference is that you are getting it back in its true form as opposed to getting it back in the form that we know of these things in this world. When you fast, what it looks like fasting superficially, what it looks like is feeling hungry, feeling thirsty, avoiding foods, avoiding certain activities. This is what fasting looks like in appearance. But when you go through these verses in the Holy Quran, and you understand what it may be saying the impression that we get from these is that what we're going to get back is fasting itself you fasted, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you your fast back but He will give it to you in its true form the form that you're not seeing the form that you're seeing is the hunger and the tiredness and the thirst that you're feeling in this world what you get in the afterlife, and we gave examples of that with certain narrations for instance, what happens to those who fast at least one day in the month of Rajab and we saw how they are described that they wear crowns, the light around them there's a thousand angels on each side and they are called from within inside the throne of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la, referred to as Rajabiyun, and they are brought to heaven all of this is an embodiment of the act that you put in that looked like thirst and hunger in this world This is what it's becoming in the afterlife. These are not random relationships. The the crown, the description of how you're moving and how you look and so on and so forth. This is the reality of that act, the reality of that intention in its true form, as opposed to the superficial form that we know of it in this life. So for today, what we want to start looking at is to continue that discussion about the relationship between the two worlds each time as we said we're looking at it from a different angle so the next angle that we want to start looking at is faith itself what is its nature what do we mean when we say iman when we say belief when we say faith what are we talking about how do we define it how do we understand it and then to try to understand what this means for the afterlife. The starting point is that, all along, in this whole series, we've intentionally been talking about two ingredients. Of course, the end that we're all aiming, the objective that we're all aiming for, is eternal happiness. In order to ensure ourselves eternal happiness, we said that we need two ingredients. We need belief, faith, and action. Now we want to start unpacking that, exploring that, diving a little bit deeper. Do we need both? Do they both play the same role? Both belief and action? Or do they play different roles? And what's the relationship between them? And of course we're not going to get to all of that today. This is what we're, when we're saying we're trying to understand the relationship between what happens in this world and the next This is what we're trying to explore And then if we start looking at those two ingredients Are they independent of each other? So for instance, if you have belief, does that have an effect on its own in the afterlife or not? You have the belief without the action What if you have the good actions without the belief? how does that translate into your eternal happiness or eternal unhappiness in the afterlife? so if you have one or the other, what if you spend a portion of your life as a believer and another portion of your life as a non-believer? how does that translate into the afterlife? okay so these are the questions inshallah that we're going to start trying to answer today with a good understanding of what belief is and in the next one to two lectures, inshallah, all of these are going to be, become a lot clearer. These are the questions we're trying to, to answer. So, the topic, the first topic that we're trying to address right now is the role of belief specifically and the relationship between belief and action. This topic has been hotly debated in Islamic theology since the first century. This was not a matter of consensus in the history of Islamic thinking and Islamic theology. What role does belief play? What role do actions play? What's the relationship between them? And you really find extreme positions with regards to this question. On one side, without going too much into the history, and if you're interested we can talk about that maybe offline or dedicate lectures to it, but very quickly, you have one position and this, the khawarij were known for that position that believes that regardless of your imam regardless of your faith your belief if a human being commits a sin especially a greater sin then that means that human being unless they have time to repent before they die that human being has become kafir has left belief is no longer a believer which equals eternal damnation, which equals no longer having the possibility to even think about eternal happiness and going to heaven and so on and so forth. That's one extreme position. On the other side, you have the other, I'm going to call it extreme position, the position of the Murji'ah, the position of those who said, all that matters, all that matters is that you have good faith. You have the right belief. As for your actions, we don't really look at them. Your actions, we're going to postpone that. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will deal with you in the afterlife. To us, it does not matter. You can do whatever you want. You can pray, not pray, fast, not fast, so on and so forth. So long as you carry the right belief, then you are someone who is considered a believer, and you are secured eternal happiness. Of course, there might be details to add, but you are secured into eternal happiness. And I'm not going to get, as I said, into the details, there's a lot to discuss. These groups, many of them and their different versions and permutations existed in the times of the Imams. And you have the position in between Wasil ibn Atta, he's the man who began an entire school of thought called Al-Mu'tazila. He was a student of Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya, the son of Imam Ali salam. He studied under him and then he went and studied under another man called Al-Hasan Al-Basri, he was considered a scholar at that time we can talk at length about him and his thoughts and so on and so forth then he left all of that and he created his own school of thought that became Itizal. and he, to answer this question specifically he created that school because he deferred with his teacher Al-Hasan Al-Basri about this issue and he created what he called Al-Manzila Bayna Al-Manzilatain when a human being, he says, commits a sin, he is neither a believer nor a disbeliever, he is in limbo, and if he dies in that state, he most likely goes to hell. And until he chooses one side or the other, he's living in the limbo, and he calls it, he called it المنزل the rank between two ranks, or the station between two stations. All of this why am I talking about it? It's not really to give a, a, a history course on Islamic theology The reason I'm talking about it is because If you understand what these people are thinking and saying You also understand that a lot of this exists today Now it may not be called the, the thinking of the khawarij or the thinking of the matazila or the Murji'ah or so on and so forth But the thought still exists today There are those who believe that if you commit a sin then you have become a kafir And those, you know, you have the, the haram police following people and telling them you're a kafir because you have Committed a sin And on the other side, on the other extreme, you have the people who simply believe that Well, generally speaking, if you have the right belief And sometimes they say, you know, you have a good heart That's all that really matters The rest is kind of details, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will deal with it, but generally speaking, you're good, you're safe, you're, you will be you end up in heaven This is eternal happiness The details are between you and Allah And it stops there No need to look further into it So you have one position that may be extreme on one side Which is kind of neglectful of your beliefs And emphasizing entirely on your act, your actions, your act And on the other side you have the entire uh, weight given to Having the right belief and actions do not become very important these are the two, let's call them extreme positions. If you come to Ahlul Bayt Ahlul Bayt, as we said, who lived during that time. Of course, we can go to the verses of the Holy Quran and we'll go through them to extract all of this. But what did Ahlul Bayt teach us? So, the, um, the correct view, very quickly, is that when you have someone who has the right, the correct belief system, but they commit misdeeds, they commit sins. The sin is not enough to push you out of the belief system. And what really matters is the belief system. This does not mean however, like the murjait, that those uh, actions become completely less than secondary, less than important they don't really matter, so long as you have the right beliefs, it's not as simple as that and we're going to see a little bit of the description that the Imams give and what the Holy Quran says about this so on the one side, the Imams are pushing back on the idea that just because you have committed sins, this does not mean that you have become a disbeliever you are still carrying the right beliefs and this is what really matters at the end but it doesn't mean that you have automatically become safe that's on one side on the other side, it's not enough to say, as we said, that just because you carry the right belief that everything is good so the i am are the ones who try to bring things back into the right balance as we find in the Holy Quran, as we find in the teachings of the Holy Prophet وسلم, and we're going to give the examples to this and of course, inshallah, further in the lessons we're going to get deeper into the relationship between faith and action and we're going to touch on that towards the end today but that's the beginning of it so does it mean and this is where the big contention might be might, might be might be said someone might object that how is it different from what the murji'ah are saying for instance it's clearly not on the side of the you know the more khawarij position where the moment you commit a sin, it means that you have become a kafir or a disbeliever. Certainly it's not that. But how does it differ from the other side? How does it differ from those who say all that matters is your belief and your actions don't mean anything? The Imams clearly taught that your actions mean a lot. And in fact, they mean so much, and we're going to dedicate a lecture to that, the role of faith on action and the role of action on faith. But for now, I thought I would just share two quick narrations that have the same idea one of them from the Holy Prophet one of them from Imam both of them talking about what happens especially to someone who neglects or is careless or underestimates the effect of sinning so while sinning is not taking you out of the belief itself if you keep sinning what is happening? where are you going to end up? So the first narration, as we said, is from the Holy Prophet He says in Arabic quickly When the believer commits a sin So first of all, this is a believer committing a sin. A spot of darkness appears in his heart. If he ceases and repents, his heart is cleansed of it. But if he adds to his sin, the spot also increases. So that dark spot increases in size. That is the sullenness or the filth or the rust that God has mentioned in his book. So, this is the Holy Prophet explaining. When Allah says, No, indeed, rather their hearts have been sullied, but what they have been earning. So, the Holy Prophet explains it. Imam al Baqir adds a bit more detail. He says, Every servant, every abd, abdin, every servant has in his heart a white spot. If he commits a sin, a dark spot appears in the white. If he repents, the darkness disappears. But if he continues further in his sins, the darkness will spread further. And then, until it covers the entirety of the white. You keep sinning, and you don't repent. You keep going back. If you repent, the Imam says, then you, there's a cleansing that happens, and the darkness and the filth goes away. But if you don't repent, and you just keep accumulating sins over sins, what happens? The darkness keeps expanding and covering the white of the heart. Of course, all of this is figurative and metaphorical. Until it covers the whiteness of the heart. If the white is entirely covered, then the owner of that heart will not come back towards the good. And this is what happens. And there are many narrations about this This deserves its own lecture what the heart is and how it's described in the narrations but for now simply understanding that you have this white pure light in your heart and every time you sin you're taking away from that light and you're putting darkness in its place and if that darkness keeps accumulating on top of itself on top of each other sins on top of sins at some point imam al-baqir says then the owner of that heart will not come back towards the good. At some point, that's it. You're sealing your fate. There's no more returning. Okay? That is the meaning. Then the Imam explains the same thing. That is the meaning of his saying, exalted is he, Ta'ala, no, indeed, rather, their hearts have been sullied by what they were or they have been earning. So the same narration. So this is to counter the idea that someone might say, we're saying the same thing as the murja, for instance. Absolutely not. We're recognizing the role, the dangerous role of sins We're simply saying that sinning on its own, in itself, does not take you out of belief But this is not to say that there is no effect to the sin And inshallah, as we said, we're gonna explore all of this a lot more in detail So now that this is understood We want to look now a little bit more closely at what is Iman and what is Kufr the reality, the nature of Iman and kufr So, Iman. What is Iman? Generally speaking, so we have to build, okay, there's a, a few ingredients that we have to put together to get Iman. Generally speaking, Iman is... Iman is a state of inclination that is spiritual of your heart towards something that's Iman. What's the something? It leans towards what? It leans towards a knowledge that has been understood and accepted. And the result of all of this is action. When your heart leans towards something that has been understood and accepted, so this means there's a rational component, when your heart has accepted the rational component, that's when you get Iman And this means that we have to distinguish between knowledge and faith Between Ilm and imam. they're not the same thing You may know something, but you don't have belief in it And this becomes important and it becomes dangerous We're gonna see how the Holy Quran talks about this in a second So if you want to follow the logical steps, first of all, you have to acquire the knowledge, which means you understand, and then you accept. If you accept that, it means your heart will lean towards it. Now we're going to drill down a little bit further. And this topic of the relationship between reason and faith, between the role of the mind and the role of the heart, I don't think we need to spend too much time on it. We talked about it for many, many lectures, from multiple angles. If you go, for instance, in Christian history and the major philosophers and thinkers in Christianity, they have that discussion. They wrote volumes upon volumes about, about this. And in Christianity, generally speaking, they say that the important role and the first step is to acquire faith is to acquire the belief, and then if you want to, and it's good for you, go acquire the knowledge that supports that faith. And this is what became later a huge discussion uh, uh, throughout the history of philosophy. There's distinction between faith and belief, and which one should come first, and what are the steps. If you go to Islam, and you go to the teachings of Ahlul Bayt you see this is not accepted. In fact, our religion says that you cannot reach faith. This is not even considered faith if it's not built on first on your reason. The first things that you read, if you open Rasar al-Amaliyya, the legal articles of practical issues for Muslims, the first things that you're told is there are things that you have to believe out of your own conviction, based on your own reasoning and persuasion. Right? And so they tell you, for instance, You cannot just follow someone else when it comes to belief in God or belief that there's a religion to follow or that there's a prophet or that there are teachings sent to you from God. These things you have to reach on your own. Which means what? Which means that this is not a matter of blind faith. It's not the heart first. It's the mind first. And you build through the mind. Once the mind has understood, then you accept what it has understood. That's faith. That's the type of faith we want in our religion. That's the type, and we spoke about that at length, I think, and and clearly enough that I don't think we need to explain all of that further. So, when we come to Al-Bayt, we see that there's an insistence on this point. First, you go and acquire the knowledge, and then you accept the knowledge, and you accept it with your heart. If you truly accept it with your heart, it has to translate into action. That's the the equation, that's the relationship. You acquire the knowledge, you accept it in your heart, you translate it into action. If there are missing, if there are lacks in that chain, it will show in the afterlife. It may not show in this world, you may get away with one or the other. In the afterlife, this is where it's going to show, this chain. You gain the knowledge, you acquire the knowledge, you accept it with your heart which means you are going to act on it. That's the chain in our religion based on the teachings of el and the Holy Quran. So what does this mean? First of all, it means that when it comes to faith, to Iman, it means that there are two very important ingredients, two axes, two angles from which we have to look at knowledge. Knowledge itself, we can look at it as quantity and quality. That's one. So you acquire the knowledge. If you have more knowledge, even better. If you have better knowledge, that's a condition, because you need the true knowledge, the right knowledge. But there's a lot of it. But on its own, it doesn't mean anything. What's the next ingredient? The intensity with which you accept it. So both of these are going to, two axes. Each of them is contributing to your imam. If you have a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of acceptance, then you have a little bit of faith. You may have a lot of knowledge, but a little bit of acceptance. You're still weak in faith, except that you're responsible for that knowledge and you're doing nothing with it. And the best case scenario is that you have a lot of knowledge, and a lot of acceptance and it shows how? it shows in your actions that's the only way you can tell that the, true, the action has truly been the knowledge has truly been integrated is now truly part of you that heart has truly accepted it so as we said it means that knowledge on its own in itself is not sufficient you can have all the knowledge of the world if your heart has not accepted It doesn't mean anything. Beyond that, if you look at the nature of knowledge and belief, one of the main differences, because sometimes this may look like it's theoretical, one of the main differences between knowledge and belief is that you don't have a choice with knowledge. When you are presented with something that is of the rational dimension so the very simple example is there's an image of something there's an image of a chair in front of you you don't have a choice to take in that image that's how knowledge works there's a logical conclusion that forms an image in your mind it could be a concept, it could be a conclusion and it could be a perception that's knowledge you get an image of something in your mind. Did you choose to create that image in your mind? No. As soon as a human being is put in front of a chair, the image of the chair will form. If they can see it, that image will form their mind. If you are told 1 plus 1, and you think 2, that image came into your mind on its own. You don't have a choice. That's the only image that can appear in your mind. So therefore, knowledge... Is compulsory. You're forced to accept it. That's at the level of the mind. But what about the heart? The heart is where you get to choose. Do I lean towards this? Do I accept this? Do I submit to this truth or not? And this is where it becomes important to distinguish between knowledge. You may understand that God exists, but your heart doesn't accept it. You understand it logically. You understand it based on reason. But if I look at your actions, they don't demonstrate. So where's the issue? If you understand rationally, logically, where's the issue? The issue is there's no belief. There's no faith. The heart has not submitted to this truth, so it doesn't come up in your... it doesn't translate into the way you live, the way you act. This is where you start seeing the distinction and the importance of this distinction. It's not enough to know the truth. Knowing is the first step, but it's the only step we can do. Externally, that's all someone can try to do is to bring the knowledge to you. And this is always the point that is mentioned in the Holy Quran when Allah tells the Holy Prophet, you're not responsible for their faith. Your job is to communicate the message to them. You make sure that at the level of knowledge, you've done your job. The imprint of the teachings is in their mind clearly, as it's supposed to be. What they do with that, whether they allow their hearts to accept or not, that's not within your power. And this, of course, gives another meaning. And I don't want to spend too much time on that, but this gives an entirely different meaning to la There's no compulsion in religion if religion means faith. There can't be compulsion in religion. No one can force your heart to lean and to submit to a truth. This is completely different from saying, I'm going to come and force you to accept. Who cares if you say the words? Who cares if you act in a certain way? I can't force your heart to accept or not accept. And that's what matters for the afterlife. Whether your heart has leaned and accepted and submitted to a truth or not. The other important point is that Yes, I am using this language of submission. And this is where you see the, the honor and the dignity and the beauty of belief and why belief becomes so important. It's an act. And it's an act of submission, which is in opposite, in contradiction to being too arrogant to accept the truth, to submit to the truth and this is where you start understanding the issue with kufr the issue with the rejection of the truth that you do not allow your heart to submit to a truth even though it's evident and obvious in front of it this is where, you know, that takes us in a completely different place but I think I would, I just wanted to leave that with you and inshallah we can talk a little bit more about it the point here is that If it's a submission, if you submit to a truth, it means it's an act, it's voluntary. And we're going to talk about that in a second with an example. So what is Kufr? Kufr means basically, it can mean two things. Either it's an absence of something, that's kind of the weaker form of Kufr, of disbelief, of lack of faith, just lack of faith, that's all. Or it can be an active act You actively reject something You stubbornly reject something These are not the same So one way to understand kufr is simply to say Something is missing You just don't have that leaning of the heart That's one layer of kufr So maybe the truth has not reached you Maybe the knowledge piece is lacking We don't know All we know in this definition of kufr is that this submission of the heart hasn't happened, but we don't know why. In the strong definition of kufr, which the Holy Qur'an seems to really be talking about, that's the one that's mentioned again and again. With the examples of Abu Sufyan and Abu Jahad and others, those are the kufar that the Holy Qur'an always talks about. It's that person who has received the truth, has understood it clearly, but they decide to stubbornly reject it. Out of arrogance, they will not allow the heart to submit to that truth. Okay? So, let's park this now. Let's go back to that notion of the submission, as we said, as being an act. In uh, acts, generally speaking, when we talk about them, we view them as something you're doing with your body but the heart can also do things the act, the spiritual act the act of your soul, the act of your heart is still an act you are voluntarily moving towards something it may be with your body, sure you perform prayer for instance, that's something you're performing with your body but there's something happening with the heart this act of submission and sometimes, so this is just to give you the terminology especially if you go in Books of ethics and spirituality and, and spiritual growth and development, they refer to this as an act of jawareh, so the external organs of your body and jawanih. Jawanih usually is a reference to your internal organs. Literally, it is the internal organs in your body, so the ones that are hidden, the heart and your insides. But how it's used. In our texts, in our narrations, in our reports, is that it's a reference to the heart What is the heart doing? What is the soul doing? You want discipline, you want patience This is not something you're doing with your body This is something you're doing with your heart or with your soul In Dua Humayr, you have this Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says, Ya Rabbi, Ya Rabbi, Ya Rabbi At some point, he says, strengthen my bodily organs in your service So he's asking for strength for endurance in his body. That's one. He wants to be able to fast like he wants to. And to stand and pray. And not feel tired and not feel too lazy doing that. But he adds and fortify my ribs or my internal faculties, the heart, the jawanih, and fortify my internal faculties in determination. Right? Qawi ala khidmatika. جَوَارِحِ عَلَى الْعَزِيمَةِ Jawanihi. What's the جَوَانِح? It's your internal. Which internal? This guts inside? No. It's your heart and your soul. So the imam is asking so that he can act with both. There's something you're doing with... This is what, we're, what we mean when we say faith is an act. It's an act of submission. Okay, so keep that in mind. So when we've been talking about deeds, faith falls into that. In the general sense of deeds, you also have that. And then we have a narration from Imam al-Sadiq salam, in which he says Al-Iman amalun kulla So here you have perhaps two big definitions to this In one way we understand this as meaning the Imam is saying If you have true faith, true faith is only going to show in your actions When you say I have belief, the only way I can tell if you have belief or not is through your actions Belief, all of it, all of belief is action, the Imam says. So either he's saying, The only way for me to know whether you're a believer or not is to look at your action. If your belief does not translate, your belief is not translating into real action, that's not belief. And so this is going back to initially when we started and we said the importance of action in the school of Bayt al salam on the other, the other side of it, the other interpretation of this, is to say the imam is actually saying belief itself is an act. This is what we talked about. This is act of submission of the heart. Make sure that your heart is submitting to the truth and not being too arrogant to accept it. And if it truly submits, it means this needs to show in your actions. It needs to show in your deeds. It needs to translate into action. It's not enough to know. And we're we'll going to... Drill that a little bit further. If you look at the Holy Quran, is this supported or not? Very clearly, it is. In Surah Al-Naml, for instance, and this is perhaps the most famous and important verse for this, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala says, "Wajhadu biha, was and How? Why? Why did they wajhadu biha when he says they impugned or they rejected? To impugn is to call something a lie. Okay, when it's not a lie It may or it may not be, but you reject it as a lie Or they simp- we can simply say They rejected the signs They rejected them Though they were convinced in their souls Wrongfully and arrogantly Or wrongfully and defiantly وَاسْتَيقَنَتْهَا وَاسْتَيقَنَتْهَا they, have they have certainty They reached the certainty The truth has reached them They understood it Their mind has a clear image of what it is but then they rejected. That's when the soul says, no, the heart does not submit. The truth is there. So Allah ta'ala says, there are people that this applies to. The truth has reached them, and but they rejected them, though they were convinced of their souls wrongfully out of being wrongful. Allah wa ta'ala says, wa They're too arrogant. They feel themselves too superior to bow down to this truth, to accept this truth. See then how was the fate of the agents of corruption We have other verses In one verse, Prophet Musa When he talks to Firaun After All of these different signs And reminders and warnings Allah sends to Firaun And the elites and his people Musa When he talks to Firaun Firaun wants to reject, reject these So he tells him Musa Tells him you, he said, you certainly know That no one has sent these signs Except the Lord of the heavens So Musa, السلام, if you want to take his words as meaning anything He's telling Firaun, we both know that you know who sent these The knowledge is there, but you reject You refuse to accept it So don't talk, don't go left and right and try to Explain it in some other way. You know who sent these signs so that you know is the key This is where you see the distinction between knowledge and faith and the other verse again with the Pharaoh, He says This is an opposition so Musa testifies that Pharaoh knows Who sent these signs he tells him you know that it is the Lord of the heavens who sent these signs and on the other side, you see when Pharaoh speaks, he says, uh, Fir'aun says, I do not know of any God that you may have other than me. I'm the only God I do not know. So obviously this is a lie. He does know, as Musa السلام, testified. Okay, in any case, that's just to make all of this clearer. So the next question is, What constitutes the minimal threshold to say someone has belief or not? What do you need to believe in? And this is something that we've touched on again and again throughout the series, but in short, and this is, once again, there might be some differing opinions about this, but in general, if you go back to the Holy Quran and you see how it talks about Iman and how it talks about Kufr, and you combine the narrations to this, the minimal threshold for iman for belief is considered to be a true belief in the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of his prophets, and the message, of course, that they come with. So prophethood and belief in the afterlife. This is the minimal threshold. When the Holy Quran talks about belief, if you have one of these missing, we can't even talk with you about belief. There's something fundamentally lacking in your belief. But of course, this is going to constitute something very, very low in terms of a threshold. It opens the door, which is on the positive, it opens the door to most of humanity to be very easily admitted into this definition of belief. Does it mean that, that's it, that's all you know? No. Of course, depending on your circumstances and how much knowledge you have access to, this becomes an infinite spectrum. But this is where the uh, line has to be drawn. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the way He presents belief and He presents Himself in the Holy Quran is always the maximum inclusion. But then at some point you have to say, but we cannot let go of those things. And those things are, this is the minimal threshold. You have to accept the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You have to accept the prophets and the messages that he sent to humanity, and you have to accept that there's an afterlife. This is the minimal threshold for belief. Does it mean that you have full belief? No. As we said, this is an infinite spectrum, but it starts here. You can't miss any of these. Beyond that, to each and his ability to gain the knowledge and have his heart accept that knowledge. Okay? So that's the minimal threshold. on the side of kufr when we say kufr what does it mean we said there are two ways to understand kufr it could be the weaker one which does not really seem to be talked about in the holy quran where someone may be lacking information lacking knowledge that leads to the truth the holy quran does not really seem to be talking about that what it does talk about is those To whom the truth has been clearly presented and explained. The Holy Quran when it talks about kufr it's usually in that there's four definitions of kufr. This is the main one that we're preoccupied with. Someone who is lacking faith. What do we mean by lacking faith? So on one sense we said it could be the weak form. You just don't have faith. That one is not that interesting to us. What really matters here is someone who has understood, the truth has reached them, and they stubbornly and arrogantly reject it they defy the truth, they reject the truth, it's right in front of them there's no excuse, and they decide to reject it that's the active form, the active strong definition of kufr okay, in addition to that that's why the Holy Quran, for instance, talks about polytheism being one of the worst forms of kufr you recognize there's a God, but you recognize many other entities with God Okay, so you you've let go of the first principle, okay? Or for instance, when the Holy Quran talks about the hypocrites, so those are people that act externally as though they have believed, but in truth their hearts have not believed. The Holy Quran, in fact, says about them that they are the worst of the people. <inaudible> indeed, the hypocrites are in the lowest reach or in the lowest depth. Of the fire, and you will never find any helper for them. And of course, this is because, as we said, what really matters is not that you are acting in a certain way, it's to what extent has your heart accepted, has your heart leaned towards, submitted to, the truth. And in the case of the hypocrites, none of that has happened. A few remarks on the threshold. The first is that there's a difference that we have to make between the minimal threshold, or what we call Iman in general, between action and faith. What we are discussing right now is the eternal salvation of a human being. We're not discussing how Islam presents itself as a system to manage the affairs of humanity. That's different. Socially, Islam may say there are certain rules that apply. This has nothing to do with what happens in the afterlife. If someone says, I am a Muslim. If someone says, there is only one God and Muhammad is his prophet and messenger, we say this person is a Muslim. What does that mean? Does that mean that that person is going to heaven? No, I don't know. I have no clue if they're going to heaven. They're going to heaven if their heart has accepted those words. I don't know if their heart has accepted. I have no way of knowing. Only God knows. What I do know is that they have said those words, which means that I can eat the food that they present to me. I can rely on them. I can marry, and I can have the burial rights apply to them, inheritance law apply to them, and so on and so forth. These matters are about managing the affairs of humanity in this world. Islam has put these principles in place not to say so-and-so goes to heaven and so-and-so goes to hell. We don't know. This is between each person and Allah We know what the criteria is, but we have no way of getting to it. I have no way of assessing whether someone's heart has submitted to the truth or not. What I see is the, real- the external reality. Islam wants me to deal with the external reality. It says for the affairs of this world, the external affairs of this world, the management of society, here are some rules. So those rules apply at the level of the legal practices and the way you manage social things. And this is where you talk about Tahara and Najasa, for instance, the purity and impurity of someone, and whether, you know, what happens to, let's say they slaughter an animal, is that accepted and can you eat it from them or not? The burial rights: do they have to be buried uh, somewhere versus somewhere else, the inheritance law, and so on and so forth. This is all left to the, the legal issues. All the legal issues have to do with this world and how Islam proposes to manage the affairs of society, which does not say anything about the afterlife and whether someone is going to go to heaven or hell. This is a very important point. Our entire discussion from the beginning of this series until today and inshallah until the end of the series We are only talking about your spiritual and eternal salvation What we are concerned with when we talk about theology is what happens to us eternally Okay, so we're not talking about the legal aspects If I say someone is a kafir or not, this is the definition that I have, the criteria that I have That leads me to believe that someone will end up in hell or heaven which has nothing to do with how I'm dealing with them in this world okay and vice versa so inshallah this point is clear the second point related to this is that obviously and we have many narrations and there are verses of the Quran that can support this is that this is all based on capacity Not everybody has the same mental capacity, not everybody has the same access to knowledge, there's conditions that in which you are born, social conditions, historic conditions, so on and so forth, that means that you are getting access to the truth and how much of it or not. And that's why we even have narrations that tell us, for instance, and I think I've mentioned that, that there will be tests in the afterlife. As soon as people are rise back from the dead, there is a station for trials people who are going to be put through tests there are truths that will be presented to people in the afterlife to see whether they accept the, these truths or not why? because these truths were not presented to them properly in this world were not presented at all to them in this world so this is where we see Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. He's entirely and completely and absolutely just in the way He will judge people It is entirely based on what is accessible and possible to someone. That's why, generally speaking, they say, for us, and as we said, this is not our job to decide whether someone will go to heaven or hell, but it looks like, based on everything that we know clearly, everything depends on your ability. If you were to be presented with the truth, would you accept it or not? Bottom line, that's what counts when the truth is properly presented to you, do you accept it or do you reject it? That's what really matters at the end. Continuing with the threshold, someone may say, and this is perhaps a little bit of a compliment to something that we discussed the last time that we met, that maybe it's better for me that I don't know. Because now we're saying there is knowledge, and the moment you have knowledge, that knowledge has to become something that your heart submits to and if your heart submits to it, then that has to become action and the more there are lacks there, the more that chain is disrupted, the less Iman you have right? so someone might say, well it's better for me, the less I know, the better it is because I'm not responsible for the knowledge that I don't have and we talked about that a little bit and we said we're going to explain it a little bit further this is of course a misconception And I thought, instead of me explaining the misconception, I'll go to the narrations, and that's why I wanted to wait to get the narration for you. First of all, in our religion, there is a duty to constantly be learning, especially about religion. You cannot just say, I know enough about religion, I'm going to move on to something else. That's not acceptable. There is a duty to constantly inform yourself and learn and acquire the knowledge you need, In religion. And of course, that's going to be a never ending journey. That's one. And there's many narrations related to that. Secondly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Holy Quran very clearly, if you don't know something, go and ask. So rationally we could establish that there is a need to learn. Scripturally, we could also establish that there's always a push go and inform yourself if you do not know if you are not sure go ask those who know and there are verses of the holy quran that talk about that thirdly notice this verse of the holy quran let's just look at the verse first and then let's look at a, re- at a narration explaining this verse in suratul an'am verses 148 149 those who ascribe partners to god they will say had god willed we would not have ascribed partners unto god nor our fathers nor would we have forbidden anything, because they used to make up their own rules. This is forbidden and this is not forbidden. Those who were before them had similarly denied, until they tasted our punishment. Say, do you have any knowledge that you can produce for us, the Quran says? You follow nothing but conjecture, and you merely tell lies. Say, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Holy Prophet to tell them, Say, it is, God, it is to God that belongs the most conclusive argument. Had, had it been his will, he would have forcibly guided you all. If he wanted to, yes, he could have guided you. But he did not choose to do it, to force you to be guided. It has to be up to you, but up to you means go get the knowledge. You cannot just make up stuff Based on conjecture On myth, on superstition On whatever you feel like And consider that knowledge Let's look at the narration from Imam al sadiq alayhi a.s. salam He says, on the day of judgment God will ask the servant My servant, did you not know? That's the first layer Did you know or not? That's layer one So if he says yes it's not over. If he says yes, he will ask him, then why did you not act on your knowledge? And if he says no, you will say to him, then why did you not acquire the knowledge? So you see, there's two layers here. Either you know or you don't. If you don't know, your duty is to go learn. So is it sufficient for one to say, it's better that I don't know? No, you're falling in another problem, perhaps a much bigger one, which is, you're not informing yourself when it's your duty to inform yourself. And if you do know, then you have to move to the next level, which is, therefore, you have to act based on the knowledge that you now have. So Imam sadiq says, if he says no, he will ask him, then why did you not acquire the knowledge? And that is the conclusive argument. The verse says, and to God belongs the conclusive argument, Allah Al-Hajjatulah. is the definition of Al-Hajjatul Did you know or not? If you did not know, why did you not go and learn? If you did know, then why did you not act based on your knowledge? And what else can you what else can you answer? What can you answer to this? So I think this is something that is important to keep in mind when we make the distinction, let's say, between I think for the majority of us, if we externalize this, if we think about others, we may think about halal and haram. You know the bottom line. Do you know the truth? Do you know Islam? Do you know God? Do you know the Qur'an? You fast, you pray, inshallah, and that's it. Let's consider that the the stronger form of this argument. That's fine and that's good. And inshallah, for all of us, we have gained that knowledge and we are acting based on that knowledge, inshallah. But then there's the next level, so those who can, if you, if you haven't secured the first level, the strong version, work on that first level. If you have, because this is always at play, this is applying to all of us all the time. We have to take it to the mustahab for instance. Sure, if you know that there's a god and there's a Qur'an and there's a prophet and there's a religion and says you have to fast the month of Ramadan, then you fast the month of Ramadan. And if you don't, then did you know or did you not know? if you knew then why did you not act, that's fine, that's the haram and halal but you can take that to a much higher degree you can say, did you not know about the month of Rajab did you not know about Salat al-Layl did you not know about helping others you do not know about giving charity and so on and so forth so this is where this becomes an infinite cycle for us this is not something that happens once and it's over with and you move on Every piece of knowledge that you get is going to come with its own responsibility. And inshallah we'll talk about the role of faith and action, how faith affects action and how action affects faith. There's a cycle, there's a dynamic there. But if you keep learning and you do nothing with that knowledge, as we saw, first of all, that's not translating into faith, that's useless. And secondly, it could actually be harmful, because this might be one more thing that Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala asks you about: Did you not know? And if you knew, then why did you not act based on the knowledge that you had? Okay. And so each of us has to have their own program. How am I applying that knowledge? Not not all at once, but if I know, I need to start integrating what I know into my lifestyle, into my daily life, and then we talked about this so inshallah I'm gonna go a little bit faster here so that we finish the effect of belief on eternal happiness so what is the effect of belief on eternal happiness on Iman, the effect of Iman on eternal happiness the desired state that we want to reach in the end we refer to it as perfection We refer to it as feeling complete Which means that in the case of a human being To be complete, it means you keep moving towards Allah The movement is with your body By doing the right things, that's the organ, the external organ And there's also a movement, as we said, of the heart What do we mean by that? We said the belief itself is an act. It means that this is a step you're taking in a certain direction. The metaphor that we began this series with, when we started talking about the relationship between life and afterlife, we started using the metaphor of the garden and the trees and so on and so forth. Your belief is the roots of the tree. That's a belief. What comes out of the root of that tree is going to be the trunk and the branches of that tree. And then you're going to have the fruits. Everybody wants the fruits. That's the whole point of having the tree. When do you access those fruits? Those fruits are only harvestable, reachable, something that you can actually benefit from in the afterlife. What happens in this life is the trunk and the branches that come out of that tree, which are your actions. This is what you're, you have to put in something in the ground. This is your faith. What comes out of that cannot be something different from the roots. And inshallah, we're going to explain that further in the next lectures. If you have put in a certain type of tree, then you have a certain type of trunk and branches, and a certain type of fruit. Another way to look at this. As we said, it's an act that you're performing. Your belief is an act towards something. So here the big question. If you did not believe in the first place that there is a God, You did not believe in the first place that there is an afterlife. When you perform the act, whatever act it may be, when you put the seed, and that seed is going to give you a tree, what type of tree do you get if you did not plant a seed that gives you the tree that is aligned with believing in God? If you perform any act, and we said any act is a movement. You're, you're doing something. Your intention is a step towards something. What was the motivation behind it? Was it God? Was it because you recognize a relationship with God or something else? Is it something else, something related to this world? Whatever that intention was, that's what you're getting back in the afterlife. That's what we talked about. If that intention was a step towards God When I pray, I pray with the intention of getting closer to God When I fast, I fast with the intention of getting closer to God And when I study, and when I invent something, and when I discover something, and when I work It's with the intention of living my life like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants me to live my life These are all steps towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when I get them back in the afterlife they are all in that direction They were steps, I'm getting them back in their true form They were steps towards Allah, I'm getting steps back towards Allah Depending on how far I walked along that path, that's what I'm getting back That is my heaven What if my intention had nothing to do with Allah So my intention was about this world I worked to make money, only and only I worked to get, get a reputation I worked for material reasons. This is the intention and the drive. When I go to the afterlife, and this is the tree that I planted, what do I expect to get back? The steps, were they in the direction of Allah, or were they in another direction? What motivated me? What pushed me in that direction? If they were not towards Allah, whatever they were towards, that's what I get in the afterlife. And we said it's a world of truth And there is nothing but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the afterlife So if it's not going towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what is it going towards? The reality of the things of this world The things that the Holy Quran again and again We saw the verses talking about them as ornaments And, and you know the, 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 the decorations of this world The child playthings and the toys and the, and the diversions of this world that's how the Holy Quran refers to it again and again, and that's why it says they are true losers, those who have sold one life for the other. if this is what you chose, that's what you get in the afterlife you walked in that direction when you combine it with what we presented the last time what is the only option? what is the only alternative left? you are simply given back what you put in it doesn't matter what it is, so this is going to solve the whole lot of questions that someone may have about what if someone doesn't have the right belief system, but they did a lot of good for a lot of people where is that leading them? where is that going? in this world? beautiful. it was a huge service performed created a lot of happiness to people, that's great. no issue with that commendable and we respect that, but for themselves selfishly, for their own eternal salvation, what was the intention behind the act? What's the point of their whole existence here? Did they realize that or not? And were their acts aligned with that or not? Did they get fixated only on the material aspect of this world? The other way to look at all of this is to say that, in fact, none of us are anything but the sum of our beliefs. And our beliefs, as we said, are the knowledge that becomes something the heart submits to, that becomes action what you are in the afterlife is nothing but the sum of all of your beliefs all of your intentions and once again this allows us to answer that question you can do a lot of good, a lot of bad, depending on how you want to define it the criteria remains the same to what extent were you taking steps towards Allah and of course we're going to explain that in more depth the next times we need. So if you have done a lot of good, you have done things, you have contributed to humanity, you have discovered things that are helpful, what does that mean? In the narrations and based on some verses of the Holy Quran, there are two outcomes that are mentioned. If you do not believe in the afterlife, if you are not ending up in heaven, and you are contributing and providing a lot of good, one, type and category of verses and narrations talks about you receiving those goods in this world. So Allah subhanahu wa Taala rewards you in this world with those things you were after. You wanted money, you wanted reputation, you wanted glory, you wanted to leave a legacy, you wanted, you wanted Allah subhanahu wa Taala in the Holy Quran and elsewhere in the narrations he says you will be rewarded for those things you were running after you will get that in this world but then you have nothing in the afterlife if that's all you wanted we'll give you that and we also have narrations that say there may be a diminishing a decrease of the punishment in the Barzakh world or in the afterlife but nowhere can you convert that the system does not allow you to take something and put on impose on it your own definition of what Allah wants and convert that into in eternal happiness And that's what we're after That's what we want to secure And this, the action in itself, on its own Is not going to be able to do that And that was the whole point of our exploration of What is the meaning of faith? And how do we build it? And then how does this become action? And the action is always with intent And the intent in this case is a movement either towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or in another direction. To the extent that it is towards Allah, and so this applies to all of us in everything we do, whether it's acts of worship or beyond, to the extent that it was a movement towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it translates into the eternal happiness. And to the extent that it wasn't, then you're going in another direction in the afterlife a few verses of the Qur'an and then we end with this that have kind of to support this everything that we talked about very quickly Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah al nisa وَمَنْ يَعْمَلْ مِنْ, من ذَكَرٍ أو أنثى وهو مؤمن. you can do all the right you want in this world but there's a condition whoever does deeds of righteousness be they male or female and is a believer those will enter paradise In another verse, Allah subhanahu wa says In 1418 مَثَلُ karamadin." The parable of those who disbelieve in their Lord Is that their actions are as ashes So you disbelieve, you reject Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And you do a lot of stuff that you think to be good You're doing good stuff But you have rejected Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Holy Quran says their likeness the example that the Quran gives for them is that their actions are as ashes on which the wind blows furiously on a tempestuous day a stormy day so you can imagine a very strong wind where nothing is left at the end no power have they over that which they have earned so if you have ashes and the wind of a storm blows on it what is left and how much power, what kind of power do you have to capture that ash as it flies away? No. So Allah says, this is what their deeds look like If you do not believe, if you you don't have any roots to your actions If your actions are not built on a foundation of belief This is what your actions look like They look like ashes that were blown away You go to the afterlife, you think you have any power to Say, I did this and I did that, Allah SWT says it scatters and there's nothing left That is the great misguidance And in 2523, Surah Al-Furqan إِلَى مَا عَمِلُوا مِنْ عَمِلٍ And we shall turn to whatever deeds they did And we shall make them floating dust scattered about وَالَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا أَعْمَالُهُمْ كَسَرَابٍ And as for those who disbelieve, their deeds are like a mirage Upon a desert plain which a thirsty man supposed to be water, until he comes upon it, he thinks there is something, he thinks he did good, and he put in the work, and he did good actions that are of good service to others, he created happiness for himself and others, their deeds are like a mirage upon a desert plain, which a thirsty man supposed to be water. Until he comes upon it, he does not find it to be anything but finds God there. He will then pay him his reckoning in full, and God is swift in reckoning. And of course, the verses continue, or like the darkness of a fathomless sea, covered by waves with waves above them, and clouds above them, darknesses one above the other. So basically the whole of Quran is saying everything that you're adding in your equation, in your account, is just moving in the right in the wrong direction. This is the darkness on top of darkness. Right? So are like or like the darkness of a fathomless sea, covered by the waves, with waves above them, and clouds above them, darknesses one above the other, when one puts out one's hand, one can hardly see it. He for whom God has not appointed any light, he has no light. And finally, in surah Hud, whoever desires only this worldly life and its luxuries, and we've looked at this verse a few times, Whoever desires only this worldly life and its luxuries, we will pay them in full for their deeds in this life. In this world, we will give them in full, we will pay them back in full for all of their deeds. But, and there is not going to be anything missing from their repayment in this life. But then, they have nothing for the afterlife. They've put in all of their energy here. We'll give them everything they were looking for and working towards. Okay, and they, they will not be deprived. They are those for whom shall be nothing in the hereafter, but the fire whatsoever they had wrought, therein shall come to nothing, and vain was that which they used to do. We went a little bit beyond the time, but with this, inshallah, I know that it was a heavy and, and complex topic, but I was trying to cover it in one lecture, inshallah, I sensed that a need for urgency to keep moving quickly so inshallah with this we covered an important topic we're building on on what we said and inshallah this uh, relationship between this world and the next world keeps getting clearer and clearer until we finish this uh, this series uh, so this is the end for the lecture part was a lot maybe just two to three minutes, I received a question before coming here um, and I thought I would talk about it because the question I think is relevant I, I think the majority of you know a couple of things, first of all a couple of days ago was the birth anniversary of Imam Ali salam. so inshallah this event did not go or does not go uh, without some sort of mention of the Imam and a reflection of what it means for you to be a Shia of Imam Ali okay? That's all I will say about that this, in, the, in the narrations we are told this is the month of Imam Ali The month of Rajab is the month of Imam Ali The month of Shaban is the month of the Holy Prophet The month of Ramadan is the month of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la. And this reflects the the hierarchy that we're supposed to follow You want to go to the, to Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la, You can only go through him, to him through the Holy Prophet you don't have access to Allah as is you don't know what you're trying to access, you don't understand anything about Allah except through the Holy Prophet and you want to go to the Holy Prophet he says if you want to come to me come through the gate I am the city of knowledge and Ali is its gate whoever wants to enter the city must come through the gate okay so that's exactly how these months are supposed to be this is a month where you have to have a relationship with Imam Ali that's all I'm gonna say about that the question I had was regarding the death of uh, Sayyidah Zainab Alayhi salam. as I think most of you or all of you know inshallah today actually is the death anniversary of Sayyidah Zainab Alayhi salam. and very quickly because of the wording and the way that the question was asked, I thought I'd just talk about it for two minutes, very quickly although it would certainly deserve its own lecture and, and, and I think it's important to think about the role, the great role that Sayyida Zainab played what type of person she would have had to be, to be able to play the role that she played in Karbala and beyond and unfortunately for many of us, this is most of what we know about Sayyidah Zainab salam. We only know about that part. Unfortunately, in a lot of the, you know, uh, some of the versions of history that we have, Sayyidah Zainab salam, is presented as someone who was a very ordinary, typical woman, and it was only after the tragedy of Karbala that she kind of played a leadership role, a stronger leadership role and this is based on some versions of history that we have this is of course something that is simply not logical so anyone who wants to go in that direction and consider her to be someone who was just an ordinary person and somehow she stepped into an extraordinary role only after the events of Karbala has not really understood what happened before and after and has not really studied the life of the Sayyidah Zainab from a very young age she was referred to as Aqidah meaning the person that is considered kind of the leader of a group specifically for, for a reason for a feature that they carry which is their wisdom, their good judgment, their ability to deal with things in a very rational and wise way That's the meaning of Aqeelah So when sometimes she is portrayed as someone who was Highly emotional And to the point where, you know, she may even be Losing her stability, especially before the events And then suddenly she steps into A very strong and difficult and stressful Leadership role It does not make any sense There's something missing there And they need to go back and study the life of this Lady from the beginning to see that she was someone in the making from the beginning this is the daughter of Fatimah Zahra and the daughter of Imam Ali and she was raised to eventually play that role and that was the climax but she had been prepared for that her entire life and the indications were there from the beginning that's one the second thing is that related to her death in, in some versions about her death, she is presented as someone who simply goes back after the events of Karbala to the holy city of Medina and then she passes away between one and two years after those events. In one version, we are told that she passes away in the city of Medina, in another version, she passes away in Egypt, and in a third version, she passes away in Syria. Here, we have to ask some questions. If you go through the typical books of history that we currently have, There are really a few things that deserve to be looked at And I think the questions themselves are enough to to raise concern And to give us a picture of maybe what happened Beyond what we find in the books of history It's the questions that we need to raise about what happened How come we don't have any details about how Sayyidah Zainab passes away? How can someone who plays that type of role With that type of presence at that time and yet, we don't have any details about what happens in those, maybe, last couple of years of her life. And then suddenly we're told that she passes away. And we're not even sure where her grave is. There is one in Egypt, as we said. In in Medina al-Munawar, there is not even a grave, even for those who say that she passed away in Medina al munawara And in Syria, there is a well-known shrine as well for her there. Well-known, we call it the Sayyida Zainab, the shrine of Sayyidah Zainab. May Allah SWT grant us visiting her Why is it that her grave We're not sure where it is And why is it that That entire two year period After the events of Karbala We know nothing about it I'll add to this If you go through our books of narrations We actually don't have An official narration From the Imams That basically tells us This is the ziyara of Sayyidah Zainab Alayhi So this is another question How come someone like that And yet there is something that seems to be missing There are holes in this story Let's keep looking, let's keep digging into that What we are told, what we know for sure is that when Sayyidah Zainab went back To the city of Medina All of the Eyes, and all of the attention was to see how Imam Sajjad The son of Imam Hussein salam, Was going to act So the Imam did not play A very prominent role In uprising And starting to lead a revolution Or continue the revolution of Imam Hussein salam, Because that would expose him And he would be killed right away As his father just was killed Along with the entire uh, you know, The rest of the family all the prominent men of the family. So who played that role? Sayyidah Zainab played that role. And she did that through the woman of the Medina. And this is how she preserved the mention and the narrations and the tradition of karbala She was the first to continue that. She was the one who put that in place in the city of Medina, that little bit of time that she lived when she went back. She caused so much concern that the governor of the Medina wrote to Yazid, telling him that she is turning the people against Muawiyah and you, your father and you. What do you want me to do? I fear that there's something that's going to happen. So if you start understanding this, this certainly cannot be considered as just, you know, an ordinary woman living in that space and that's it. And she, you know, peacefully died in Medina or elsewhere. And so Yazid drove back to him and he told him, separate her from the people. And so the decision was made, we are told, to push her out. She was told, you need to leave. And initially she refused. And then we are told that there are women from Bani Hashim who came to visit her. And they told her, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has already rewarded us. We went through this tribulation and trials of Karbala. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has rewarded you for your patience and for everything that you have gone through. Don't cause more problems and difficulty for yourself. And if you leave in your dignity and your respect, there is no harm in that. And so we are told in one version, that's when she went to Egypt or in another one, that she went to Syria and to Damascus. And she went with her husband and she would have stayed there for a while, a year or less, and then she passes away. My question to you is, does anyone who understand the way in which Bani Umayyad dealt with Bani Hashim, the household of the Holy Prophet, with Imam Hussein and his family specifically, do you think that they would just leave a woman like that, who is turning the people all alone in the city of Medina, she has that kind of influence and power, would they just leave her and let her be? and travel the land, and continue to do the same type of work that she was doing, and explain to people who Beni Umayya are, and what they did to the grandson of the Holy Prophet? Is that a logical conclusion? And then to say, and then she went and lived there peacefully, and then she died peacefully. Even though there might be gaps in history, there is certainly more to the story than that version of history. And so the linkages that I wanted to bring your attention to, is that maybe there are gaps but it does certainly look like perhaps these gaps were deliberate perhaps there are people who cleansed and who removed any mention of someone like her from the books of history and anything related to her especially when we are told this is exactly what Beni Umayyah tried to do they removed her physically from the city of Medina and I would wager and be ready to say and of course they had her assassinated just like they had many others assassinated as soon as they constituted any threat to Beni Omayyah in general and their empire and, and dynasty. Okay, so all of that to say, let's not be so gullible and accept the superficial version of, you know, whatever were presented about these people, especially if we understand the role that they play, or the counter role that they played in uh, an environment where they were clearly representing the opposition and clearly representing a threat to the government of the time, the power of the time, these dictator uh, dictatorships, tyrannies uh, that were ruthless in the way they dealt with anything that was a threat to them, especially if it came from the lineage of the Holy Prophet, because that was the biggest threat at that time. So, in any case, I went beyond the, the time that I wanted to, so I apologize for that. And if there are any questions, concerns, comments, um I'm um, all yours,